So we've been in a series in the book of Mark called Live It. The Live It on the screen. It took me a while to connect that when they hung it up. I had to sit and read it a long time. I think I missed half of Steve's sermon trying to figure out that it said Live It. Brian did a great job last week of uh, bringing up this idea that Jesus was inviting the disciples into a culture that was so different than their own that they just weren't getting it. And today I want to talk about a similar thing in our perception that Jesus was turning things upside down. And if we take our visual perception and we consider that if you watch a baby and a toddler, part of what they're figuring out is what their spatial relation is to the world as they perceive through their vision. So there have been some experiments done to see how well our brain could function if our perception was turned upside down. As a matter of fact, there have been some folks who have made some inversion goggles that can turn our perception upside down. And there are some folks around the world who have spent long lengths of time in these goggles and they found that you can actually learn to function in a world that's turned upside down. Watch this video clip that's a little YouTube introduction so that you can see what it's like from behind the glasses, and then a little help from our staff around here doing three simple tasks, uh, trying to catch a ball, walk around some cones, or trace a stick figure. As adults, we take it all for granted, but in Chicago, psychologist Hubert Dolezal has devised a bizarre way to test how well our brains can adjust when everything we've spent years learning is turned on its head. He's built a set of goggles that flip the world upside down. tasks become quite complicated when our perception is turned on its head. And as we look at Mark chapter 10, which we're going to go through together today, so you might want to turn there. Um, As we look at Mark chapter 10, this is what Jesus is doing again to his disciples. He's taking their worldview, their expectations, their cultural norms, even their religious traditions, and he's turning them on their head. And I think that the disciples were feeling something like some of the folks in the hall when we were doing that video. They'd put on the goggles and they'd go, where are my feet? I feel like I'm walking around myself. I can't find my hands. Totally disorienting when our perception is turned upside down. And in Mark 10, we're going to look at a few flips. Um, Jesus is going to talk about marriage, and he flips the way they've been looking at that. He's going to talk about children, and he's going to talk about wealth. And we're going to look at the flips that he gives us in this passage. Brian mentioned that there's kind of a hinge in the book of Mark, and that 
At the beginning parts, we're looking at life and Jesus is establishing his ministry and there's miracles and people are getting on board and they're excited about it. And there's a hinge and we're past that hinge now and Jesus' face is towards the cross and he is headed to pay the penalty for our sin and he is not mincing words as he has opportunities to teach and people are asking him questions. And this is not an easy passage. As a matter of fact, after I said yes to this weekend and then I saw what the passage was, I was like, oh boy. Really, I get to try for this one. And so just let's go together through this. What we're going to do is we're going to read the passage. We're going to talk through the scripture. We're going to pause along the way. I'm going to talk about some of the things that um, I've been learning as I've been studying this. So we're starting in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? This is the first place I want to stop because as I was reading this, I thought, how is that question a trap? Some of the other traps that the Pharisees set up, I understood. But I didn't understand how whether or not a man should divorce his wife was a trap. It's fairly clear in the Old Testament that a man shouldn't divorce his wife. And so I I did some reading and some looking into how was this a trap? And in order to figure that out. We've got to look back at the beginning, which could be an easy detail to just pass over, but it's what region he's teaching in. He's teaching in the area east of the Jordan River. And if we remember from the early parts of Mark, the area east of the Jordan River is where John the Baptist was teaching. And John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And one of the things he taught was that a man should not marry a divorced woman that a woman shouldn't divorce her husband, a husband shouldn't divorce his wife, and he taught this. Well, the ruler of the area named Herod didn't like his teaching because Herod was married to his brother's wife, Herodias. And Herod and Herodias took offense at John's message. They had him arrested, and they eventually had him beheaded because of his teaching on marriage and divorce. So now does the idea that this is a trap make a little bit more sense? It did for me, because the Pharisees have clearly established that they would like to see Jesus killed. And it would be so much better for their reputations if they weren't the ones that had to do it. So they follow Jesus out to this area, and they innocently ask, is it right for a man to divorce his wife? And as we look at the answer that he gives, it is really important for us to remember that this was not Jesus over a cup of coffee with someone whose marriage was in shambles, whose heart was broken, and was asking him, what should I do? This was a question from some religious leaders who wanted to see Jesus killed and were throwing a theological question at him that they really didn't care the answer to. That's the context of this question in this passage. But Jesus responded, uh, no, Jesus answered them in verse 3 with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Jesus just gives us a brilliant, a brilliant example of how to diffuse conflict. They come at him with this question that they just are all barrel. I mean, they just want to get him. And he just says, what do you think? What do you think? I love how he does that. I think it's a good example for us. We can diffuse conflict when we answer with a question instead of with anger. That was a bonus, by the way. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. 
But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. What I love about Jesus' response is that he takes them back to the created order of things. He takes them back to the very beginning, and he says this was how God intended it to be, that he would join a man and a woman together, and that they would stay together for as long as they both shall live, and what God has joined together, let no one separate. And why does it matter? See, I think that sometimes we tend to view sin as this arbitrary list of things that we're not supposed to do because God needed something that he could punish and be angry for us with us about. Because God needed something that he could test us with and prove whether or not we would obey or not obey. Because God needed a way to say these people get to get in and these people don't get to get in. It's this arbitrary list to prove who's good and who's bad. But the reality is God calls sin, sin. Because as the creator of the universe, he understands the way that we are wired and he understands what will break our heart, what will break our relationships, what will break our society, what will break our sense of safety. He understands what will wound us. He understands that we need to live a certain way in order to live into our created destiny. And when he names sin, sin, it's because he knows what will keep us from him and what will break our hearts. See, I've heard a definition of sin that goes like this. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that displeases God. And I think that there is a seed of truth in that definition. But I think that definition needs to go deeper. Because I think a definition that touches the heart a little bit more is that sin is anything we think, say, or do that hurts ourselves and hurts others. And the reason it hurts and displeases God is because it's hurting his creation. And so when he takes this question back to the beginning of creation, what he's saying is that when we don't take our marriage vows seriously, we are hurting ourselves, we are hurting our spouse, we are hurting our children, we are hurting our parents, we are hurting our siblings, we're hurting our friends. That was all Jesus said in public. And then the disciples went back inside, and they are the ones who needed to revisit this because, you see, it was a flip, and they were trying to wrap their brain around, where's my hand? This is disorienting because listen to this. In verse 10, later when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. In the parallel passage in Matthew 19, it says, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else, except in the case of marital unfaithfulness. And also in Matthew 19 is where the disciples say, well, if that's the case, then it would be better not to marry. Listen to that. If we're supposed to marry one person and stay married to them for the rest of our life, then it would be better not to marry. That was the view of marriage that the disciples of Jesus Christ had at the culture at the time that they were living. See, in Middle Eastern culture at that time, a man couldn't have more than one wife. And so if he got tired of his first, he could just divorce her and go to the second and divorce her and go to the third. So the value of women was completely devalued. The value of marriage was completely devalued. And there were many people like Herodias who were trivializing their first commitment in order to get what they wanted in a different commitment. And this is what Jesus is saying not to do because it's sin. But it's not sin simply because it's some check mark on some arbitrary list. It's because he knew it would hurt our hearts. 
and that it would break up society. And so he calls us to stay true to our marriage because marriage matters. And that was the flip for the disciples. Marriage matters. Now I'm guessing that just reading this passage, for some of you, you've got some questions and you've got some stirring up going. You're going, what about my personal situation? And what do you think about this? I can't answer those questions in this context. Just like those aren't the questions Jesus was answering in his context. But I want to say this. If you have some questions about marriage, if you have some, that you want to process with somebody, you could feel free to email me at sfowler at salemalliance.org. <laughs> That's S. Fowler, who would be happy to answer your marriage question. In all seriousness, Salem Alliance is a place that believes in marriage. We've got marriage seminars and things that go on around here that you can watch the announcements for. And there are quite a few pastors on staff who would be happy to sit down with you and talk about what some of your questions are if you find yourself in a personal difficult place as regards this. We move on to the next flip, starting in verse 13. One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. I'm guessing that in this time, the view of children was somewhat similar to our view of children. They're a gift. They're a blessing for the family. They're certainly fun and and cute and full of joy, and we love to watch their antics. But we're often tired, and we're impatient, and we have important things to do, and we don't want to be distracted or disrupted. And I believe the disciples thought they were protecting Jesus as they said, no, don't bring your children to Jesus. Children aren't important enough to distract the very important work that he's doing. And Jesus says, no, let them come. They are the important work. They are the ones who need to be embraced and received and blessed. See, he says, Whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And it suddenly becomes imperative for you and I to understand how children receive the kingdom of God. You see, children receive the kingdom of God with freedom that is not encumbered by self-protection or cynicism or trying not to be duped. Children receive the kingdom of God with faith. You have to teach a child not to believe what they read in the Bible. You have to teach a child not to believe that God will heal and change and move in answer to their prayers. Children have a simple faith. They have innocence. They have joy. This is what we're invited to when Jesus tells the disciples, don't rebuke the children. We need to value and imitate them. Value and imitate them. If you have children in your life and you've found that you've just kind of gotten into this routine of, go away, leave me alone, I'm too busy... Ironically, when I was preparing this sermon, my seven-year-old trotted up and said, Mom, and I said, no, go away, not now, sweetheart. We need to be paying attention to the children in our life. We need to be seeing how they're wired, how they function, and what joy they can bring. And if you don't have children in your life, maybe you need to go find some children and pay attention to them. Because we need to be like them in order to inherit the kingdom of God. We get into a a section here on the rich man and what Jesus is going to say about wealth. Verse 17, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. The passage goes on to talk about how hard it is for the wealthy to get into the kingdom of heaven. And again, you and I need to sit up and take notice because most of us are in the upper 3% of wealth in the entire world. And while we might look at people who are wealthier than us and feel that we are not wealthy, we are. And we need to pay attention. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. See, uh, Steve explained several weeks ago in a sermon on generosity that the Old Testament builds up this expectation that it is not unreasonable that the disciples' way of thinking about wealth was that the more wealth you had, the more blessed you were by God. That God gives this and this and this and this in response to obedience. And so if you do what God wants, you'll become more and more wealthy. So see, the view was that the wealthiest people were the ones with the most favor with God. So if wealthy can't get into the kingdom of heaven, then what about the rest of us that don't have as much money so obviously are not as blessed by God? This is their mindset when Jesus takes it and he flips it. And the flip is this. Wealth does not equal higher status with God. Wealth does not equal higher status with God. And for the disciples, that was a really hard one to wrap their brains around. The passage goes on to talk about how anybody who gives up a house or property or mother or brothers is going to receive more and reward in the kingdom of heaven. That in fact, the greatest will become the least and the least will become the greatest. There's flip after flip after flip. And their minds are reeling. And I think our minds can start to reel when we realize that Jesus is putting his finger on some personal things in our own lives. I think if we dig into his personal conversation here with the rich young ruler, we're going to see a couple things that apply pretty significantly to our life. When the rich young ruler asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In our Western evangelical mindset, we tend to think that he's asking, how can I go to heaven? After I die, how can I have eternal life? But there's another definition of eternal life. We find it alluded to in John 10.10 when Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. This life that looks like the life that Jesus was living, this life that listens to the Father and functions out of his presence and that has power and authority over sickness and over the demons, this life that is not this average life, but this life that is lived to the full, the fullness of the created destiny that God put in us. And I think that's the question that this guy is asking when he chases after Jesus. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to inherit the quality of life that you are demonstrating and preaching about when you talk about the kingdom? What must I do to inherit that? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he lists out some of the commandments. Now, this is something that I find intriguing, and I need to say that it's something that someone else pointed out to me. I wasn't smart enough to see it myself, so if you've never seen it, it's okay. You're in good company. 
but when Jesus lists out the commandments, there's actually a command in there that's not part of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read it to you really slowly and see if you can find it. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Did you hear it? You must not cheat anyone. That's not one of the original commandments. So why would Jesus, in a list of the commandments, add something that wasn't in the commandments? And I'm going to give you a supposition that I don't know if it's the real deal or not because I wasn't there. But what if... What if Jesus added, you must not cheat anyone, because the way the rich young ruler has made, had made all of his money was by cheating people. And that Jesus' instruction to go and sell everything, to the poor, sell everything you have and give it to the poor was actually restitution for the fact that he had been cheating people. What if by inserting this little phrase into the commandments, Jesus was identifying the man's heart, speaking to his heart without shaming him in front of other people? I don't know for sure, but it sure does give a different perspective on the answer that Jesus gave, didn't it? Because that answer has always bothered me. Long before I had to prepare for preaching this sermon, I have wondered, why did Jesus say, go and sell everything you have? Is he creating a list of what we have to do to be saved? Clearly, Paul demonstrates that our salvation is based on faith alone. It's not based on anything we do. It's based on belief in Jesus Christ. That is clearly established in the scriptures. Yet, if you look at Jesus' interactions with the people who asked him about eternal life, he gave a different answer every time. To Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came and asked him, he said, you must be born again. He gave him an answer that was mysterious, not understandable, and it, and it, it messed with his mind. It flipped his ideas upside down. To the woman at the well, he said, you need to drink living water. And when she said, give me some of this water, he said, go and get your husband. And then he told her that he knew that the man she was living with wasn't her husband, that she had had many husbands. When the feeding of the 5,000 and the people were saying, give us a sign, give us a sign so that we can believe, he told them they needed to drink his blood and eat his flesh. He offended so many people that they began to leave, even though they had seen his miracles. And then we have the rich young ruler who came and asked, and he said, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Is he creating a list of what is required for salvation? I don't think so. If we think back to John the Baptist, his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus came out of the desert after his temptation and he began preaching, his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he sent out the disciples two by two, he sent them with the message to repent. So it should not come as a surprise to me or to you that when people came asking Jesus how to enter the kingdom, he told them, to repent. You see, if you look at each individual story, you see that Jesus, who knows the hearts and the minds of men, is putting his finger on their individual need for repentance. For Nicodemus, this man who had grown up becoming a scholar and an expert in a myriad of laws, he said there's only one thing and you can't wrap your intellect around it. For the woman at the well, who had put all of her faith and hope in finding her needs met in a man, he pointed out the place of her repentance. Come to me and find your needs met in me. For the people who wanted a sign after sign after sign, he said, you've got to believe. You've got to believe. No more signs. This is about belief. And for the rich young ruler, he said, you have earnestly asked me, 
for how to get this quality of life that you desire. You have an earnest desire for this quality of life. You've given me an honest question, and I'm telling you that you lack one thing. It's the hurdle. It's the hindrance. It's the thing between where you stand and the life you want, and it's your wealth. If you will give it away and give it to the poor, you will find the life that you desire. And here's our flip about repentance. There's two pieces of this flip. One, I think we tend to have the idea that repentance is a one-time thing. We know that in order to become a follower of Christ, we need to admit that we are sinners, receive his forgiveness for our sins, and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross and was risen again in payment for our sin. And we repent and we turn from our ways and we start a new lifestyle. That is first-time repentance. But I think even as seasoned believers, there are moments of repentance in our life where there is something between us and the life that God created and designed us for, and we need to turn from that thing and turn to God and repent so that we can enter into the life he created us for. There is something that hinders us. There is a one thing. Repentance is not just a one-time thing. And the other key to this flip is this. In verse 21, it says, Jesus felt genuine love for him. In the New International Version, it says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I think like sin, we sometimes tend to think that repentance is when God takes the one thing that we really, really love in life and he puts his finger on it and he says, you can't have that. And repentance is this second, it's another picture of God as the the big grumpy God who's the one who kills joy because he doesn't want us to have what we want and what we like. But we need to recognize that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler with love. He recognized his desire. He looked at him with love and then he said a very hard thing. As I looked through repentance in the scriptures, Repentance is the gate, the door into God's mercy, his forgiveness, a new heart. How many of us feel like we need a new heart? Even when we've walked with God for years, we come to this season where our heart feels dry and calloused and hardened and we recognize that we're responding with criticism and just grumpiness more often and we know we need a new heart, a new spirit, life instead of death. It is all through the doorway of repentance. You see, repentance is God's gift of love to us. Repentance is a gift of love. The invitation to repent, even if it's a hard thing to do, is an invitation that flows out of God's love for us because he knows the thing that stands between me and the life I desire. He knows my one thing. And the question I have today is, what's your one thing? What's your one thing? What's the thing that God would say, this is hindering you from entering into the next season of maturity and development as a follower of Christ? This is hindering you from health in the relationships the way that you want to be with people. This is hindering you from, name your hindrance. See, for some, it might be marriage. It might be that you have taken your marriage vows lightly and you need to take a step back and say, God, I will seek you for help to keep these vows. For some of you, it might be children. You might have children in your life and you've just slid into kind of disregarding them and God might be saying, you need to pay attention and invest and bless. You only have them for a very short time and this is a high and holy calling. Love your children and learn from them. 
For some of you, it might be wealth. Your worries about wealth or the wealth that you have. I've heard a quote that 95% of Christians would pass the test of persecution, but 95% of Christians would fail the test of prosperity. Is our wealth getting in the way of listening and obeying what God would have us do to enter into the kingdom of God? Not when I die, I get to go to heaven, but the quality of life that he desires for us now. I know for me, part of my one thing is trust. I spin my wheels trying to make things happen, thinking that I have to do God's job. And I have to learn how to trust that he is God and I am not. I know there are other things out there. Some of you, your heart might be pounding and you go, I know what God has put his finger on in my life. Others of you might be going, I don't know. And I would say this, you don't have to go digging for trouble. But if you would give your spiritual posture a sense of openness that says, God, if you want to show me, I'm paying attention and I'm listening. And as you listen to God in life, I want to remind you of something that Laura told us last week. That if the voice that you begin to hear in your head, the thoughts that you begin to have in your head as you invite God to speak to this issue of what's your one thing, is a voice that is shaming, that is mean, that is calling you names. Sometimes when I'm processing things, um, I've, I've had this thought of, you're just being a brat. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is kind. And that means that God is kind to us. And that means that his voice in our head does not call us names. So if it's a voice of condemnation, if it feels like a big dark cloud, but you can't really tell what's wrong, it's just this weight of heaviness. It's kind of like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Something's wrong with me, but I don't know what. That's not godly conviction. That's condemnation. And you can ignore that voice. Because the voice of God, when he looks at us with love in his eyes, and he tells us a hard thing, is conviction. It will be clear, and it will have a way out. It will have at least one step of turning to be able to turn towards God with a willingness to change and open our heart and our soul to his transforming presence in our life. You see, because when we know the one thing that God is saying, this is hindering you from entering fully into life with me, we have a choice. And that is, what will our response be? Will it be like the rich young ruler? Will we go away sad because it's too hard? Or will it be more like the father in last week's passage? The father who took his son to Jesus for healing and Jesus said, if you believe. And he said, I believe, help my unbelief. That is one of my personal favorite prayers because it demonstrates my heart so well. God, I believe. Oh, help my unbelief. And when we see our one thing, we can bring that same hearted prayer to God. God, I see what you're saying. I see that it's hindering me. I want change. But God, it's so hard. Please help me know how to do this. Give me the courage. Give me the wisdom. Transform my mind so that I can see this differently. God, I want to enter into the John 10, 10, life to the full. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. As we're praying, I'd like you to use your imagination with me for a minute because the verse says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And Jeff talked about in our time of confession, looking into the eyes of the Father. We look into the eyes of a loving Father with an honest heart that's willing to change. And as you look into the eyes of God, what do you see? 
His eyes are not angry. His eyes are not scolding or shaming. His eyes are not sarcastic or cynical. His eyes do not communicate that you are stupid or that he doubts you. His eyes are full of love for you. And it's from that place of love that he offers an invitation to the point of repentance.